once you kind of figure out that you are in fact walking into a jungle when you walk into the market and you have a water pistol and other traders have bazookas, the best thing you can do is not get into the jungle. That's Mir Statman, professor of finance at Santa Clara University and author of Finance for Normal People, How Investors and Markets Behave. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, he tells Joe and Big Al how smart people can avoid doing stupid things when it comes to investing. Also, are you house rich but cash poor as you approach retirement? The fellas have some strategies for making use of that home equity to create some additional retirement income for you. Now, here's a guy that's always good to his mother, Joe Anderson, CFP, and the perpetually positive Big Al Clopine CPA. Welcome to the show. We have a um, few things lined up today. Yeah, we do. I'm pretty excited. Are you? Yeah. Well, at least one of us is. Because, you know why? Why? It's my favorite time of the week. I actually get to sit down, relax, have a nice chat with uh, my best friend. All right. So there you go. Well, look at you. <laughs> Buttering up. <laughs> show better be really good. It better. Um, you know, let's, let's get into a couple of different topics right off the bat, Al. Yeah. Home equity. We did this TV show. This week on home equity, using your home equity, because if you take a look at some of the statistics, average net worth is, do you got that in front of you, bud? Because, of well, course, I, I'm not prepared. I, I do. You're just, <laughs> just hoping. You're hoping I get these charts. I am which, just going off of memory that I, is not doing very I well. Which I happen to have. I'll try not to give out too many numbers, but let's just focus on 65 to 69. That's a common retirement age, right? So the average net worth in round numbers uh, is about, and this is median. 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 Which means half the people are above this and half the people are below it. So that's what median means, just so you know. It's not an average. Correct. Because averages can skew when you have some billionaires in there. Got it. Right? Okay. So median. Right in the middle. Right. Median net worth is 200000 All right. 65 to 69. However, the in rough numbers, the median liquid assets, investments, stocks, bonds, and other types of investments, cash, whatever, 50,000, which means if you got 200,000 and only 50,000 is liquid, the other 150,000 is in your home, home equity. So in other words, three quarters of people's net worth in the United States, 65 to 69 on a median basis is, is the real estate equity. 75%. 75%. And how many of those individuals do you think have a strategy to potentially tap into that home equity to create some additional retirement income? Well, not many, Joe, because uh, at least the folks that we talk to, they, they, don't, they want to stay in their home, first sure. of all, and mm-hmm. they, they've heard reverse mortgages are shady, and they don't want to do that, and they certainly don't want to borrow more money on Right. They home. want to get out of debt. Yeah, they're trying to pay off their debt, right? right. Which, is, which is a great thing to do. But then you still have all this home equity that's, uh, as we just went through, if it's three quarters of your net worth and you have only so much to work with on your retirement, you're missing out uh, potentially on on, on some, some retirement lifestyle. Right. But the problem is, is that the emotions come into play, not necessarily the financial numbers, because it's like, I want to get the debt paid off. So I know for a fact- I got a what, place to live. I, I got a place to sleep. Right. And I totally understand and yeah. I get that and there's that sense of security. But if you do this appropriately or strategically, I think that more and more people might have a more comfortable lifestyle in retirement if they utilize their entire net worth. Yeah, I think so too. And then when you look at another stat, Joe, when you're 65 and older, almost 80% of those folks own homes. Right. So we're talking about the majority of people own a home and the majority of their net worth is locked up in their home equity. Correct. So let's dive in. Let's get into a few different things that that, that people can do. First is what? Maybe downsize. Yeah, you can downsize. And and there's lots of reasons you might want to downsize. Like maybe you don't need as large a home. Maybe kids have moved out. You don't really need all the bedrooms. Right. you might want a single story. Maybe you had a two-story home. Maybe it's time to, to get a single story as we get older, unfortunately. Knees. Knees and back. Backs, arthritis, a few of those terrible things start can set in. Maybe uh, you want to move closer to the kids. That might be another reason you might want to downsize. And- you know, I would say that's most 
popular. Yeah, that's that's a common thing that we hear. Uh, in fact, I would say most m- most common when people say they want to downsize, that's the the primary reason. Right, because the kids moved out of state. Yeah, yeah. and you know they want to be closer to the grandkids. Yeah, and they don't necessarily have maybe the additional capital to, to take you know all sorts of trips and so right. on and so forth. Right, and and then of course another one why you might want to downsize is obviously to reduce expenses because. Maybe you can pay off your mortgage, right? Because maybe you've got a million-dollar home and a $500,000 mortgage, and you sell that, you buy a $500,000 condo with no mortgage. I mean, I'm not saying that's the best Jeez. use of funds, but I'm just giving you a real simple example. $500,000 condo is nice. In, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking Southern California. I was home for a graduation for um, my little cousin, right? So I go back, and I haven't been back to Minnesota in a few years. Right. Right. So go to the house where I grew up, where it was, I think my parents maybe, they had like a little apartment and then that was their first home. Right. So they bought this thing 50 years ago, right? 45 at least. Right. And at the time, it was, you know, it's a very nice home. It's a small two bedroom. Um, I don't know what the square footage is. Yeah. But my father was a... um, carpenter right right and so he remodeled the attic to make it um a bedroom for my brother and i so it was the okay. entire attic so it was a, the whole oh you had your whole st- a whole story a whole story yeah, yeah. it wasn't anything <laughs> extravagant believe Did you me. have a ladder to get up there <laughs> it was like you... maybe 400 square feet yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah we had to get a, a little fire pole to get exactly, down in the morning <laughs> exactly uh but it was it was enough where uh, my brother and i um could have a little bit of space right and then he remodeled the basement so um there was it, it was a very small house, but it, with a handyman, you can you know yeah. redo things and make sure. it you know look nice. Yeah, turned it, out to be what ten bedroom home, <laughs> twelve hundred right. square yes. feet, yes. <laughs> four hundred square feet, ten bedrooms, <laughs> one bath. Right. Your, your bed was uh, was. Uh, uh, have you ever seen Willy Wonka in the ch- 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 chocolate factory? Yes. Yeah, yeah, when everyone's sleeping in the same bed. Yeah, yeah. yeah My brother same, and I, we had a share bed. Same deal. Huh? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and so I I come home anyway. And the neighborhood has changed because I lived okay. in right outside of um, Minneapolis, North Minneapolis, and it's the first suburb outside of North Minneapolis. And the yeah, the neighborhood has changed just a, a smidge in the last forty years. Right. And so all of the neighbors, you know, that my mom and dad were friends with, th- they all died off or moved or did whatever. My father passed away now what about eight years ago. So it's yeah. just been my mom in the house. Right. Yeah. The, the neighbors, I don't think they know that they don't have a, a lawnmower. And, you know, there's just grass and weeds and every, And I was like, Ruthie, this is time. It's, it's, yeah, time. It's, it's, it's time. Right. Right? And I said, you know what? I will buy the house for you. Because it's Minnesota. It's a yeah. couple hundred grand. Yeah, you, you don't need right? 500 So it's going to cost me $500 a month. Yeah. Right? And so it's a lot of money, but still, sure. it's not. I'm, you, not, I'm not buying a house in San Diego. You can pull it off. I, 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 it's going to be a stretch, but I, I might, think I can Might have it. to sell your home. I might. <laughs> so, all right. So I go, Mom, why don't you start taking a look at, you know, 55 plus communities because you need friends, right? You need activities. And she doesn't, I mean, she's what, 68, but she doesn't like to drive on freeways and things like that. Yeah. And so if we go into this nice community, you know, you can just walk to the little, you know, play cribbage or whatever you want to do. Okay. Right. So they'll probably have a pool and stuff like that. So she looks around and then all of a sudden she's like, I found the place. I said, sounds good. All right, tell me more. She's like, oh, it has a pool, two pools. Okay. Right? It has a nice rec room. I can, you know, throw Christmas parties if I want to okay. and everything else. Nice. So, um, but she's like, you know what? I, I found something out. And I go, what's that, mother? And she's like, well, I think I have champagne taste on a beer budget. <laughs> I never heard your mom say that. Well, you don't talk to my I mom know. as often as I do. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, well, tell me more. So she, it's a, it's a build. We're gonna build a home in Minnesota. So it's oh. a little bit more than two hundred thousand. Got it. But not too much. So starting from scratch. Starting from scratch. From ground up. Yeah. What the okay. hell? <laughs> I go, Ruthie. You know, you made me the man I am today, so yeah, I can I'm, help you with this. Sure. 
But it's a good son. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. But I mean, she, there's not a lot of retirement savings there, right? Um, you know, they didn't really. They put kids through school, and you know, they they weren't necessarily educated on financial planning and things like that, right? So that was my worry too. It's like, okay, well, here, well, if you sell the home, well, then that will free up a little bit of cash flow where you don't have to be, you know, living off of eight hundred dollars a month, right? Right. So now you have a nice home, and then you have a little bit more cash flow, and then you have some, hopefully. You meet some friends, right? And she's like, "Hopefully, I find a man." And I was like, "Okay, wow. now let's. That's just, a little, this little that's too little much, much. <laughs> too too much." <laughs> but but there's other other motivations too. I think why um, as you get into retirement, you might want to move um, because it's like it, she was just living in this house by herself. All the neighbors that she was friends with for the last, you know, thirty years, they right. moved, died. Yeah, you know, some gone. some other people kind of moved yeah. in, and once with that lawnmower. Uh, well, yes, and she's like, yeah, there was a mattress in the yard for like a month. <laughs> oh, really? I was like, oh boy, oh you know? boy, yeah. So uh, yeah, it, it because you know, men tend to die before women, and then my dad died very young. Um, so it's like, all right, well, there's, there's other motivations too, because you still got to find that purpose. You got to find friends and that social circle and everything else in life. So, um, so we're excited. So I think it, uh, she will move in, I believe in December. Right. So good for her. Yeah. So that's, but that's not really downsizing. Is that upsizing? Well, I don't know what the hell it is. <laughs> it's, as long as she's happy, I'm it's happy. Because she's got the uh, champagne taste. On the she's beer got budget. champagne taste on a beer budget. Yeah, yeah. So, do you think Joe has taken his own advice from previous shows and made sure that the Anderson family estate is in order? Keeping family records current and centrally located is a challenge, but it's especially important when a family member dies or becomes disabled. Make sure you're ready before you need it. Visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and download our free estate plan organizer. It's designed to help ensure your assets and desires are carried out upon your departure. Find all the relevant information, fill out the forms completely, keep them up to date, and store them in a safe, easily accessible place for your heirs. To get your free estate plan organizer, just visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now, Joe and Big Al covered downsizing. Later in the show, they'll return to the topic of how to use your home equity as you approach retirement, and they'll discuss gain exclusions, refinancing, and reverse mortgages. But right now, finance for normal people with our guest, Mir Statman. We have Amir Statman back. It's been a few years. It has been a few years. Very smart individual. Amir Statman, thank you so much for joining us. How you been? I've been fine. I'm delighted to be with you again. Hey, well, we got a new book coming out, Finance for Normal People. Well, who are normal people? Oh, normal people are people like me and like you and like your listeners. Uh, We are people who are generally normal smart, but sometimes normal stupid. And we are generally normal knowledgeable, but sometimes we are normal ignorant. But we are all intelligent people and we are able to acquire knowledge and we are able to increase the ratio of smart to stupid behavior. (laughs) So we're smart in some areas and stupid in others. Where do you think we fall on the stupid category? Investing is probably one of them. Well, for example, just the other day, uh, there was a piece that I wrote for MarketWatch about uh, why it is really hard for individual investors to beat the market. And and I got a, a bunch of responses uh, on that site that kind of said, don't tell me that it's hard to beat the market because if you just exclude the 300 bottom stocks from the S&P 500, then I can beat the market. <laughs> and I say, well, good luck with that. You know, that that is, it's kind of this old adage, uh, buy stocks that go up and if they don't go up, don't buy them. So people just don't seem to get the difference between foresight and hindsight, and people don't seem to get the difference between luck and skill. And so some people will say things like, well, I can beat the market if I'm lucky. And I say, well, that's very good, but you wouldn't just go by luck, I hope. 
you're not going to uh, invest by luck. You have to have some reason to invest if you are actually not playing a game of luck, but you're trying to save for retirement. And, and so these are things where people just, uh, normal people are ignorant. The normal people then do stupid things. And uh, I hope that uh, you and I uh, can educate them to do better. Well, let's start there. What should people do when they, when they look at their investments? Well, the first thing they should do is really figure out what it is that they want. Uh, they, they want to save, uh, or perhaps they find it hard to save, but it is important to save because there will be a time when you will not have income and you will have to live on your savings. And so figure out how you can save best for the future. Think about what you want. So, so you want to have a secure retirement. You want to be able to uh, support your kids rather than have them support you. For some people, uh, they want to play the market. And I say, well, if you want to play the market, you should know that this game is an expensive game, uh, perhaps more, more expensive than golf. Are you sure that you want to spend the money? to play uh, that game. Some people lie to themselves and they say, well, I trade uh, to make money and, and, and they do funny accounting by which it looks like they are making money rather than losing money relative to, say, a, an index fund. And so figure out what you want, figure out the trade-offs between wants. You know, I want to play games, but it costs me money. Does it make sense for me to do that? And then proceed towards your wants, proceed towards your goals, avoiding as many errors as you can. Well, do you think that because of the lack of savings that individuals have as they approach retirement, they are trying to play the game within their head to find the, you know, the, the, the golden goose here of investing because they need that return because they've lacked on the saving side of things? And then that's why, where they, they, they make errors? That is some of it, yes. That, that is, people who, who feel behind are going to take risk to catch up. Now, remember, those generally taking risks is, is what we do in life. As I like to say, you know, if you want a real risk, get married. And if you want more risk, uh, have children. So we take risk for, for a reason. We, we move from state to state, from career to career, to uh, get the benefits of, of those uh, changes. But if you are in your 60s and you have not accumulated a huge amount of money, and if you think that now you are going to make a killing by uh, buying into, say, a franchise, a new franchise that supposedly is going to be great, well, yeah, it might be great, but it might leave you really penniless. Uh, and so I say to people who are getting to be old such that they cannot make this money uh, back anymore, you know, buy an occasional lottery ticket. And so you have hope, but don't risk your blood money. Don't risk what you must have in, in retirement for a chance to, to make it rich now that you are in your 60s or, or later. What's different with this book than your first book, What Investors Really Want versus Finance for Normal People? What I try to do is really present what I think of as a second generation of behavioral finance that really begins with what people want and then goes into the cognitive errors. But then I also say that the knock against behavioral finance is that it is a bunch of really interesting story about stupid people, but it does not have a portfolio theory and it does not have a life cycle theory and it does not have its asset pricing theory and its notions of market efficiency. And so I tried to show how those wants and shortcuts and errors underlie those components components of finance to present a unified framework of behavioral finance that I think at this stage is lacking. Well, give me a few examples. Well, uh, think about notions of market efficiency, okay? So, so our discussions about market efficiency tend to be really confused because people confuse notions where 
Market efficiency means that the price is always right. The price equals value, as I call it. And the notion that a, a market efficiency means that it's hard to beat the market. The way I say it quickly is that, yes, the market is crazy, but that doesn't make you a psychiatrist. And so people kind of jump, tend to jump from the conclusion that, gee, you know, I've, I've seen the market behave in crazy ways to, therefore, I can figure out when to get into the market and when to get out. Well, that, that really is, is wrong. And people who try to do that uh, usually get burned rather than uh, get, uh, get rich. And then I try to explain why it is that uh, people who should uh, not be playing games in the market, uh, sh- you know, that, that they should understand that trading, for example, is like playing tennis against possibly Djokovic. Uh, are still doing that. Uh, one is because they don't understand that it is tennis against possibly Djokovic or Goldman Sachs or, or, or high-frequency traders. They think that it is a simple game of tennis against the training wall. Uh, and then there are some people who understand that they might be playing against a, a player who is better than they are, but they're just overconfident in their skills. You know, they say, I never played against Djokovic, and so I guess that the chances are 50-50 that he will win or I will win. And so from that, you know, you can kind of draw the lessons that say, what do we know from evidence-based investing and how is it that we can do better for ourselves and our families by doing smart things and avoiding stupid things? More finance for normal people with Mir Statman in just a minute. But you're listening to Your Money, Your Wealth, so we already know you're not exactly normal, right? Actually, it means you're probably ahead of the game. Now, make sure your portfolio is retirement ready. Visit YourMoneyYourWealth.com and sign up for a free financial assessment with a certified financial planner. How much money will you need in retirement? What social security strategies are available to you? How much income can you get from your portfolio? Make sure your retirement strategy is aligned with your retirement goals. Sign up for a free two-meeting assessment with a certified financial planner at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. We're back. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Uh, Joe Anderson here, certified financial planner uh, in Big Al Clopine CPA. Uh, talking to Mir Statman, he's a professor of finance at Santa Clara University. He's got his PhD from Columbia University uh, and an MBA from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Uh, Mir, you know, I think you bring up a really good point. I would say that the average investor still doesn't understand that there's someone on the other side of the trade. And I think that that's what your analogy was referring to is that you know I might get a, a good stock pick from the Uber driver and then I do a little bit of research and I'm like oh this is a really good stock pick and then I go to the you know my my discount brokerage on my computer and buy that stock you're not buying the stock in most cases from that particular company it's on someone else's balance sheet and the person that you're purchasing it from is not Fred next door. It's Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan that has thousands of analysts that look at that and they're selling it to you at that certain price. Uh, so w- was that kind of how your analogy worked yeah, out? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I say it in every trade. There is an idiot, and it is likely to be the one who has less information. And so think about it. That is, you heard it from a driver, or you you saw it on CNBC, or uh, or you did your own analysis and take you seven hours, but uh, but remember that you're not competing against somebody like you. You might well be competing against somebody who is at Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs, who knows uh, this company inside out, and, uh, and, and, and even he or she uh, is not necessarily going to be right every time, but surely they are uh, right more often than you are. And so, and so once you kind of figure out that, that uh, you are, in fact, uh, walking into a jungle when you walk into the market and you have a water pistol and other traders uh, have, have bazookas, uh, <laughs> that, that the best thing you can do is not get into the jungle. By that, I do not mean don't invest in stocks. By that, I mean uh, invest in index funds and trade only when you must, when you have money that you want to save and put in the market and when the time comes for you to take it out, whether it is to pay tuition for your children or retirement income for yourself. All right. So let's say if I want to start constructing my portfolio and so we've kind of, all right, well, trading 
doesn't necessarily work or the probability of success long term is probably very low. You could get lucky on a few trades, um, you know, because Al and I hear you know, people come into our office that, you know, bought Apple at X and, you know, look at how much, you know, how big of a genius I am. Uh, but, you know, there's that that's the only stock they hold. That's the only trade they've ever made that made any money. Right. Um, so how would I look at this? So I, I want to build my portfolio, have my goals in line. I want to retire at some point. I'm saving some money. I want to use lower cost type funds. How do I construct a portfolio? How would, how would I go about that? Well, you know, I like to say that, that we want two things in life. One is not to be poor and the other is to be rich. And generally thinking, you think about bonds for not being poor and think of stocks for being rich, moderately rich at least. And so, and so the question really is always, so what proportion should I have of stocks and bonds? And I say, you know, when you are young, uh, most of your portfolio, in fact, is in your head, in your body, uh, in your human capital, as the economists call it, in the income that you're going to be earning because you have uh, skills and ability to work. And so you can put uh, most of the other money, that is money that you save in the 401k, for example, you can put it all in stocks and you'll be fine. As you grow older, there comes a point where your human capital is getting close to zero because you are too old to work. Uh, And here you have to have some uh, downside protection. Uh, You can have it with bonds, you can have it with with annuities. Uh, You need you need something that uh, such that you are not going to find yourself not able to pay your your basic uh, bills. Precisely what proportion uh, will you have? Well, uh, if you have accumulated a really a good amount of money such that uh, even if worse comes to worse, you're going to have uh, enough to live on, uh, then you can have uh, as little as 20% in bonds. You know, if the 20% in bonds make uh, for, for $2 million out of a $10 million portfolio and you're in your 70s, that is fine. Uh, but if you have a, a more modest a portfolio, then then you might want to have a bonds uh, as much as half or perhaps even more. Uh, and and remember, in addition, you are likely to have uh, equity. I hope that you have equity in a house that you own that is also providing for downside protection. So so kind of be be judicious in just asking yourself how important it is for me to be protected on the downside and how it important this for me to be uh, having an opportunity for the upside. And, and if you have relatively little and you still want upside, then go back to my example of buying a lottery ticket from time to time that will give you hope uh, of being rich. Mir, I have the best portfolio in the world, and you have a portfolio that was recommended to you by Alan Clopine. So that means it's, it's not that great. But still, I bet you would perform a lot better than me an average individual investor, because you might have higher priced mutual funds. Maybe you have, you know, it's, it's diversified. Um, it's nothing crazy, but it's not structured, you know, to to the T. But maybe I have the perfect portfolio. I found the magic sauce. I have the perfect portfolio, but I cannot control my behavior. I freak out. I get greedy and I get scared. And so even though your portfolio is subpar and mine is the perfect portfolio, I think the most important component of this is how are you going to react when markets react? Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And one of the nice things about getting the philosophy of just investing in index fund is that there are things that go with it. The, the things that go with it, for example, is don't try to time the market. And so uh, I liken myself to, to a cork uh, on uh, the surface of an ocean. You know, I kind of go up uh, with the market and I don't uh, congratulate myself for being smart and I don't double my investment and I don't panic on the downside. Uh, what the market gives me is not because I'm smart and what it takes away from me is not because I'm stupid. And so, and so if you uh, get to understand sort of evidence-based medicine of how or evidence-based investing 
uh, of how uh, you can injure yourself, uh, you can kind of catch yourself and say, aha, it feels like this is a good time to double my investing. And then there will be the other voice who says, kind of like your parents' voices that says, don't do it. Uh, or, or it says, boy, you know, I don't like whatever who was elected uh, last time. Uh, I think that this country is going uh, in the wrong direction. I'm going to, I'm going to sell all my investments and, and be in cash or in gold. And, uh, and you're going to, to make another move that is likely to be a, a stupid move. And so if you know your proclivity to your emotions, then you are able to use your intelligence to step away from your emotions, to count to 10 before you speak when you're un when you're angry, uh, and if you know that that all people are subject to to hindsight, for example, uh, thinking uh, that they knew in 2007 that it's time to get out of the market, and they knew in 2009 that it's time to get back in, then it will give you the illusion that you will know next time when to get in and when to get out. But I am not smarter than anyone, and and I, whenever I have a feeling like that, this is a good time to get in or get out, you know, I take a cold shower until that feeling goes away and I do nothing about it. And so I just, I just put in money that I want to save. And when the time comes, I will, I will take money to, to spend, but, but I don't, I don't play games because I have learned uh, that these games are costly and uh, that, that those games are going to be things that I'm more likely to regret than take pride in. Yeah, but it's the, that emotion is tough. It's like, all right, well, I'm in my 60s. I can't afford to lose 20% of my overall portfolio. But, you know, but you're 60, right? You got 30 years of life. You need to have some risk in the overall portfolio, I guess, depending on how much money that you have. But I would say most Americans need some sort of risk to outpace yeah. inflation and taxes. So they, they, they need to, you know, stand tall and take those cold showers and start talking to 10 backwards. <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you really, exactly. There is no, there is no uh, life that is free of risk. So you have to really pick it up, pick up the, the, the risks that you want. And remember, the people who get out, say, in 2008 or early 2009, uh, it is not a matter, of, they are afraid, of course, but, but what else they're doing is, is they extrapolate and they say, if the market has gone down, surely it will continue to go down. But no, the market has a, a mind of its own. And, and sometimes when it is down, it continues to go down, and sometimes it turns to go up. And if you get out and then the market turns up and you're out, you're going to find it really, really difficult to swallow your pride and get back in uh, and buy at a price that is higher than the price at which you sold. And so just, just think of people who got out in early 2009 and they're still waiting for the market to crash uh, to its level and get, and get back in. And so that's what I'm saying. We are intelligent people. We have emotions, but we have learned to control our emotions. When somebody tells me that he can get me 15% risk-free, I'm afraid. Uh, and that fear prevents me from going for another Bernie Madoff. But this fear that the world is coming to an end and you should just uh, get it all in gold, well, that is really an exaggerated fear. And in all likelihood, you're going to uh, hurt yourself rather than help yourself. That's great advice. Mir Statman, he's a professor of finance at Santa Clara University. Uh, check out his new book, Finance for Normal People. It's a great book. It will help you get on track. Hey, Mir, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much. And thank you. It was delightful. All righty. We got to take a break. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. San Diego, Orange County, and Los Angeles, join us for a two-day financial planning course designed to help you make informed decisions for retirement. With topics ranging from building a nest egg to converting your IRA to a Roth, we'll give you all the tools and confidence you need to plan the retirement you've always dreamed of. The course comes complete with a 200-page textbook with illustrations and examples, which is yours to keep. For tuition fees, dates, times, locations throughout Southern California, and more, visit the Retirement Classes section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. We're talking about utilizing potentially your home equity um, as you approach retirement. A lot of you might be house rich, cash poor, 
And so what do you do when you want to have a little bit more cash flow from your overall nest egg and there's not a lot there, but you have a lot of equity in the home? So downsizing is one thing that you could potentially do. What's another? Yeah, that is. Well, to continue on that, Joe, the, um, some people don't want to downsize because they think it'll be too expensive from a tax standpoint. And the truth is, over 20 years ago, the laws changed with regards to selling your residence much more favorable than they used to be. It used to be a once-in-a-lifetime, Joe, uh, gain exclusion. When did that change? I think it was 1986. I could be off a few years, but somewhere in there. It was a while ago. And um, and the thing is, a lot of people still think that rule is in existence. That was $125,000 once-in-a-lifetime exclusion. That's gone. That's no longer available, but it's much better now. What you get now is a $250,000 exclusion per person. So if you're married, it's $500,000, and it's no longer once in a lifetime. It's virtually every time you sell your principal residence, as long as you've lived in that home two out of the last five years. You owned it and you lived in it. Those are the requirements. Now, if you have a if you have a rental and you converted it to a residence, you will still get some um, some exclusion, gain exclusion, but it's not quite as favorable. They kind of shored up that rule. Uh, I think two thousand nine. A lot of questions come about this with the rentals, but also let's say that I've lived in my house right yes. for thirty years and I'm single and I have you know let's say a six hundred thousand dollar gain. And then I have this girlfriend of mine that I've been with for years, and it's just like, well, we want to sell the house. Maybe I get married, and then I sell the home. Now I'm married. Right. I sell the home, and so do I get the 500000 It's That's an excellent question, and it does come up frequently. So the way that the, the law is written is you have to own and occupy the home two out of five years. So I would have to hold that joint with my spouse Correct. two out of the last five years. So we would have to live there two more years before we sell it after we get married. Yeah. Now, it's it to me, Joe, it gets a little bit fuzzy in California because it's a community property state. And I may have attorneys disagree with me, but because it's a community property state, I think there's an argument if you've been married uh, for a number of years, but it's just the, the home is in one spouse's name, not the other. And you're paying the mortgage with with income, right? Salary, which is community income. Could that be considered a community property asset even though the spouse is not on title? Maybe. But anyway, much safer to put the spouse on title and then wait two years. And so it's, but that's the thing. You have to live in it two years. You can't just be on title. You also have to live in it. So own and live in it for two years. What if so you have to be married. How about if I had a live-in girlfriend for 20 years? That's fine. If you're both on title and you both live there, you each get a You would each get the 250, 250 on your each individual return. Got it. Yeah, you could do that. There was even a case, uh, I'd say maybe five years ago, uh, where uh, mom and dad, son and wife lived in the same house, and they each got it, and all were on title. They each got a $250,000 exclusion. That must one, have been a pretty large house. Million dollar, yeah, gain exclusion. Sure. Yeah. Wow. All right. So let's let's go to uh, rentals. So now I have two different rentals. I sell my primary residence. Get that right. Sell it. I get the one twenty one exclusion. Right. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars because I'm single. Then I move into my rental property. Right. And I live there for two years. Two out of the last five. Right. So do I get the full two hundred fifty thousand dollar exclusion? Uh, n- not necessarily. <laughs> so what what happens there is like let's say you bought the home as a rental in 2010 and you sold it in 2017, the current year, but you've lived in it two out of five years. So let's just say for simple math that you uh, was a rental for five years and a residence for two years. Then then in that example, you take the owner the the time you lived in it two years divided by the total home ownership, which is seven, and so two sevenths of the gain can be excluded up to the two hundred fifty thousand. It's 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 somewhat complicated to explain on the air, but the, I guess the biggest thing to realize is that when it was a rental first and then it became your residence, you're not going to necessarily get the full exclusion. You will get some, but not the full. Right now, on the other hand, if you bought the property in 1985, 
<laughs> There's all kinds of weird rules because even though it was a rental that whole time, they considered from 1985 to 2009 just like it was your residence because they didn't have this rule. So you get all those years as residence, so you get a much higher uh, allocation. Exclusion, yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing is when it's a uh, principal residence and then you move out and it's a rental, well, that's completely different. When it starts as a residence, you can still get that full gain exclusion as long as you've lived in it two out of the last five years when you sell it, which mathematically means you can't rent it for more than three years because then you won't have lived in it two out of five years. So that's possible, although you will have to do depre depreciation recapture. Recaptured, right. So you depreciate your rental to get a tax deduction. Whatever you depreciated, that tax deduction comes back as, a, as an income item but the gain i could potentially exclude some or part right but the depreciation recapture i'm still going to have to pay 25 percent tax on the recapture of depreciation yeah tw correct 25 percent, or it could be lower if you're in a lower tax bracket Got it. but yeah yeah that's exactly right we're told that the biggest federal tax cut ever is getting closer, but the president and the GOP remain divided on a number of key policy questions. How might income tax, estate tax, and business tax change? Visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and download the white paper, Tax Reform, Trump versus House GOP, to find out. Are your tax strategies at risk? Get year-end tax planning tips that can help you stay on track in the midst of uncertainty. Download the Tax Reform white paper to find out more. Visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Talking about getting um, the most out of your net worth in regards to a retirement income strategy. A lot of you have potential um, to create a little bit more income in retirement by utilizing your entire net worth. And we're talking about home equity. Uh, so downsizing is one. Um, another could be... Yeah, you could borrow against it. Yeah, oh That's tough Here when you're go. retiring, right? But let's at least go over the options. Sure. Whether you like it or not, you need to know what the options are. And and for some people, this is a fine option to refinance their property, to, to try to get a lower rate, right? Lower interest rate, number one. Or number two, maybe they lengthen the term, which seems contrary. I, I, I want to pay this off, not extend it. But sometimes in retirement, you've only got so much income to work with, and it's all about managing your cash flow. And if you've got 18 years to go on your mortgage, if you refinance it to a 30-year, all of a sudden your payment may go down by a third. Sure. And I'm not saying that's the right answer for everybody. I'm just saying that's an option. And we've seen it work in many cases where people only have so much income to live off of, and it allows them to retire. Because here's some of the issues that we see, because they're not managing their cash flow appropriately, and they're Managing their debt, um, maybe too aggressively, which is, you know, I think to, to steal your word is counterintuitive. It's like, well, of course I want to aggressively pay off my debt. But here's what happens is that you're putting every last ounce of, you know, discretionary cash flow to the mortgage. And you're not saving any other monies, right? You're, you're not saving into the 401k plan. There's very little cash reserves. There's nothing in a brokerage account or a Roth account. And you're aggressively trying to pay this big mortgage off. And then you pay the big mortgage off, but then you don't have any cash to live off of. Now you're just basically living off of Social Security. Right. So you, there's a balancing act here. And then, so it, de it depends on a lot of different factors. It depends on what you're trying to spend long term in your retirement. It depends on your fixed income, such as what is your Social Security benefits, what is your uh, pension benefits if you have them, what are your other liquid assets. But what we have found that works well is to have a little bit more balance to say, well, do I want to put an extra $5,000 a month to the mortgage, right, to try to pay this thing off in 15 years versus saying, all right, um, and especially if I'm in my 50s and 60s. I'm seeing, all right, well, I'm 65, and I'm still jamming all this money, and I want to retire at age 70, and you're still going to have a $400,000 mortgage. Right. Right? Yeah, because I, I get it. It makes you a little nervous to have that big number in front of you. But if you refinance, push that thing out as far as you can to get the lowest payment possible and take the additional cash flow and put it into your 401k plan, put it into your Roth plan, or put it into cash or whatever, your $2,000 payment goes to 700 bucks. Right. Right. Even though, yeah, you're paying it a lot longer and there's going to be more interest and everything else, but then you can handle your cash flow a little bit. You're going to have more cash reserves. You're going to have larger investment assets. And then if you look at it this way, too, I just ran into an individual that refinanced this. Um, it was like a million dollar note. 
And he's like, all right, I'm, I want to pay this thing off in 10 years. And he didn't have very little, very little retirement assets, right. right? Very little cash, and it's like, and he's paying like a hundred some odd thousand dollars to to pay off this million dollar plus note in ten years. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, fast forward ten years, the note's paid off. Now what? Where's your? What? Do you, what you know what I mean? What are you doing? You you have a finite period of time to have this much income that is coming into the household. Right. In ten years, you want to retire. That big income that you have is no longer. You need to look at strategically figuring out what is the best strategy to pay off the debt, right? Also, to create additional assets. How about if you pushed it out 30 years? You get a you know 4% rate, you have a lower payment, but then you take that over a 10-year period, let's say, that's enough time. Instead of putting everything to the mortgage, you put it into a brokerage account. Maybe the brokerage account over 10 years grows at 5%. Six percent. Sure. Okay. So you get the compounding of those dollars at six percent, and then at the end of ten years, you you could take that money and pay off the note, right? And you would still have additional cash. So it's it's just understanding arbitrage, I guess. If you're paying four percent, but if if you're in a um, high tax bracket, your cost of capital might be three percent because of the tax deduction that you receive. So it's like, oh, right, over the next 10 years, do you think you can, you know, beat 3%? Because by paying that note off aggressively, you're guaranteeing yourself a 3% rate of return. But if you have a diversified portfolio over 10 years, do you think you can get a little bit better than 3%? If you don't think you can, then of course, then just pay off the note. But we believe that, yeah, maybe over a 10-year, 15-year period, you could probably do a little bit better than very low. I mean, people could lock into the lowest interest rate probably we'll see in history. Yeah, and and just have that going forward. And I think just so we're clear, we're not saying don't pay off your mortgage, but the the point is don't pay off your mortgage to the exclusion of you saving for your retirement. Right. And that's what we see. We see a lot of people as they approach retirement, they're way behind on their retirement savings and they're putting all their excess cash cash that they have from their their job in their mortgage, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but then what ha- fast forward to retirement They've got a home, maybe it's maybe the mortgage is paid off, or maybe it's a lot lower, but they have almost nothing to live off of. And then it's like, oh, I, then they got to sell their home. Sell the home. Or they got to refinance it right. to pull cash out, or whatever. Or they just have to have a much lower lifestyle than what they wanted. They're, they're, they're home rich and cash poor. Have you heard that before? Yeah, and that, right. That's exactly what happens in this kind of situation. So it's, it's determining where you are, how old you are, when is your retirement date, how big of a note do you have? is going to determine, do you pay that thing off or do you just now punt and just refinance and get the lowest payment possible? Each of those strategies are, are, are perfectly fine, but one strategy is going to work better for one person while the other strategy is going to work better for the other. Yeah, That's why it's so difficult to give any type of real advice you know, over the airwaves, in a sense. Yeah, you, we can just sort of give concepts. And, and you're right, it's different for everybody. And, and I would say this, Joe, even... A national radio host, Dave Ramsey, and he he is big on debt repayment, debt oh, reduction. You want to bring up Dave Ramsey? I do. Follow me here a second. <laughs> so his his whole thing is after you got your emergency fund and your credit cards paid off, is is his his methodology. We're maybe just slightly different, but I like the concept, which is then after that, the next step is to completely max out your retirement accounts. Then when you've done that, you start paying extra on your mortgage if you want to, right? And not vice versa. And that's what we're saying. We see people do vice versa, especially as they get to age 55, 60, and they go, i got to get this thing paid off. And so they, they exclude their retirement savings, and when they retire, they're kind of, they're, they realize that wasn't such a good idea. For even more useful information, visit YourMoneyYourWealth.com to access white papers, articles, webinars, and over 400 video clips on tax planning, investing, retirement planning, social security, estate planning, small business strategies, and much more. It's a veritable treasure trove of information just waiting for you at YourMoneyYourWealth.com. If you need more help, you can always email us at info at purefinancial.com or just pick up the phone and give us a call, 888-99-GOALS. That's 888-994. Four six two five seven. What about a reverse mortgage, there, bud? Well, that's a that's an interesting question, Joe, because I think a lot of us um, 
particularly the baby boomer generation, we've heard all these horror stories about reverse mortgages. And so a lot of us have kind of just presumed that this is not something we ever want to look into. And and the truth is, about three or four years ago, there was some pretty new uh, legislation by the HUD, Housing Urban Department, I think, or Urban Development. They came up with... um, You call it the HUD? The HUD. The HUD. I was thinking the HUD because I wasn't sure exactly what it was. I don't think you have to put the in front of it. The HUD. I don't the, think it's called the, the HUD. HUD. Just HUD. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know HUD. You know the HUD. Well, you yeah, put, those guys. You put the HUD. Okay. Anyway, so they like a bar. they came up with a few things. Uh, first of all, which I think is really good, is they considered the younger spouse in the in the whole calculation. Which here's what happened in the past: you had a 75 year old male, I suppose it could have been a female, and you had a 40 year old female. Oh come on, that's pretty aggressive. It could, it could happen. <laughs> So the seventy, and they they do it on the. You talking um, about me? I'm just doing the math. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the the old guy or the old gal, let's put it that way. I don't want to be sexist. Um, passed away, and the and the reverse mortgage was calculated on that older, older person's life, right? Not the younger spouse's life, and so therefore, when the older spouse died, the younger spouse had to get out of the home. Right. Right. Well, here, let's ex- explain what a reverse mortgage is first. So you got to be 62 years of age to do this. And basically, you know, in the, in the, just the name reverse mortgage, no one really wants to get into that because you're going in reverse. You want to go forward. Right. Um, but a forward mortgage we're all familiar with. You have a note on your house. You have a $200,000 mortgage. And you, there's a certain interest rate on that mortgage. And you're paying interest in principal to pay off the $200,000 back to the bank, you know, within a, a 10-year, 15 20 year 30 year you know mortgage a reverse mortgage works in opposite reverse right so you have to have equity in the home first of all to do this and there's limits and caps on what they calculate is what the the market value of the home is it's about 650 grand right so if you have a million dollar home they're going to assess it at 650,000 because that that's how the calculation runs to see how much equity that you can potentially use, right? Because they're protecting themselves just in case the market goes down like it did in 08. So you could then take cash flow or a lump sum uh, loan out of the home, but you don't have to pay it back with cash flow. So right now you're paying your mortgage with cash flow. With a reverse mortgage, the equity in your home pays the mortgage payment. So it's in reverse. So there's no outlay of cash flow from you, but your equity then potentially could shrink if there's no growth in the overall house, right? right? So the equity is paying that mortgage payment each month. So there's some flexibility there. So it's like, all right, well, right now I'm paying $1,200 a month to the mortgage. If you do a reverse mortgage, right, well, then that could potentially free up $1,200. Right. So that's the concept of it. So there's a lot of pros where it's like, all right, well, here, I can free up $1,200. I can use that on my spending and do anything that I want. But there's also cons. Like Al said, it was like in, in the past, it was like, all right, well, if you have an older spouse, 62, and maybe you have a younger spouse at 60, right? And let's say the the, the the older spouse passes away at 63, and that other spouse is not 62 yet. It's calculated on the older spouse. You got to be 62 to do it. Then it's all of a sudden, hey, get out of the house. We got to sell this thing. There's, you know, assessments, and there's all sorts of, you know, negatives, but there's also, I think, a lot of positives. Right. And so I think you're right, Joe. The, the, um, so in other words, the, the amount that you can borrow is now the younger spouse is considered so that if the older spouse does pass, then the younger spouse doesn't have to move out of the home. And to just just be really clear on this, right now the, the cap that you mentioned is actually 636150 okay. That's the highest value that they'll give you on your home for this calculation. Even if your home is worth $2 million, it's six thirty six one fifty. So, so the most that you could potentially get out is a reverse mortgage is about 300 grand. Yeah, so the way this works, they have a principal limit factor because the bank doesn't want to loan you the whole thing because you're not paying the interest. So the interest is going to be adding to the principal balance. So I can give you an example, uh, and this is based upon a 5% interest rate and a 62-year-old homeowner, you could get about 52% of that 636, if, as long as your home is worth at least that much, right? Which would be 333000 Now, then you take that money 
if you already have a mortgage of a couple hundred thousand, well, that has to be paid off with the 333. But using your example, where you had a $1,200 mortgage payment, now that goes away because that mortgage is paid off, and you still have about $130,000 that you can receive either in, an, in a lump sum or in a, in a cash flow month by month, depending upon your choice. So one of the better advantages is to do the line of credit. I think so, too. Um, you know, home, yeah. um, a HECM, a home equity line of credit, is um, how that works is that you open up, let's say, a reverse mortgage at age 62, and you have the $300,000, right? That's your principal limit. But you're not going to use that. You're not going to take it out. You're not going to spend it. And what happens with that 300000 or 333 whatever the number is, right? That's your line of credit. That's going to increase each year by the interest rate that the bank is charging. So if you think of it like this, is that if you have a loan, and if I'm paying off the mortgage, right, there's an interest rate on that that I'm paying off. So there's a principal payment of X, and then there's an interest payment of Y. On a forward mortgage, you're paying both of those off. In a reverse mortgage, it's just building up inside the equity, uh, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I feel like Wade Fall right now. It is pretty <laughs> difficult to explain on the air. <laughs> he tried. On so a TV what show. happens though is then that three hundred thousand—that's your line of credit. But your line of credit is going to increase each year by the interest rate that they're charging. Because if I took that three hundred thousand dollars out as cash, right? I, I took a lump sum. They're going to charge me on that three hundred thousand. Let's say it's five percent or whatever that number is. Sure. So my line of credit is going to increase by that five percent per year. So if I don't take it out, it's still going to grow. So one of the strategies is is that you take the, the line of credit or at least open it up as soon as you can, because maybe now at 65 or 70 or 70, right, you might want to use some of that. And it's going to be a lot larger balance because it has increased over the last 5, 10, 15 years or whatever it is. Right, right. Yeah, that that is true. It's, it's a good safety valve. And some of the strategies that some advisors in Wade Fowle, he's a, a chartered financial analyst, PhD um, at the American College. He was actually on our uh, radio or TV show. And it's like, all right, well, here's a strategy. It's like sequence of return risk. When the markets go down, you don't want to be selling stocks so you could potentially tap into that line of credit. That line of credit comes to you, and it's going to be tax-free. You don't have to pay it back until you sell the home. So Al and I are not licensed mortgage experts by any stretch of the imagination, but we want to help you just at least you know, cover some topics here that you might not be aware of to say, hey, that might make sense in my particular situation. Well, and, and as Wade Fow has talked about, a lot of people are also looking at reverse mortgages in their 60s uh, so that they can delay Social Security longer, because not only will they get a higher monthly benefit by delaying, but a, a lot, some of that Social Security is actually tax-free. At least 15% of the federal Social Security income, if not more, will be tax-free to you. And 100% of that Social Security income is tax-free in California, which is a great benefit. And to me, it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's another tool, particularly since a lot of people have a lot of their net worth you know, kind of stuck in their home, if you will. The Your Money, Your Wealth TV show features an interview with retirement researcher Wade Fowle, which you can watch on demand on our YouTube channel beginning August 14th. Once someone already has full home equity, that's locked up inside their home and they don't have access to it other than something like a reverse mortgage. Just search YouTube for Pure Financial Advisors and Your Money, Your Wealth. And right now, you can watch clips from our estate planning show with attorney Nicole Newman, Trump's proposed tax plan, Social Security Savvy, and all about the 401k, and much more. If you're just dying to see Joe and Big Al on your computer screen, don't miss the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show. Just search YouTube for Pure Financial Advisors and Your Money, Your Wealth. It's time to dip into the email bag with financial questions courtesy of Advisor Insights from Investopedia and you, the Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Don't forget, Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your money questions. Email info at purefinancial.com or you can send your questions directly to joe.anderson at purefinancial.com or ellen.clopine at purefinancial.com. Alan has a personal email that he would like to read. It's actually to you and I. Uh, this is from Zach. It says to hi, Joe and Al. I like the way he starts it. I love the Your Money, Your Wealth podcast. 
I've listened every weekend for years. And the heading of this is Young Listener Question. All right. Okay, here's my question. I'm 27. I've been maxing out my Roth IRA, my 401k match, and my health savings account. I pay myself first. I invest in Vanguard index funds. My next goal is to pay for a down payment on a first home in around eight years. I guess when he's about 35. Is there a smart way to tackle that goal? Adding Is adding stocks too risky? Thank you, Zach. And then, of course, he goes, P.S. You guys were joking about Al's, in quotes, celebrity status last week. But I assure you, some of us would definitely ask for an autograph. First of all, I think he's got the wrong show. <laughs> <laughs> no one has asked you or me for an autograph. It definitely can't be asking Alan for an autograph. Because you... Well, that's it says Al. <laughs> well, there's got to be another show with Al. But anyway, getting to his question, so he's doing all the right things, right? Yeah, so he listens, right? you got to pay yourself first. You've got to you yeah, know, start ma- with the match, and then you go to the Roth. His 401k match. Got a little his HSA Roth. going. Yeah. And he's got Vanguard Index Funds. Like it. Like it all. Good and for then, you, Zach. then he wants to save for a down payment on his first home in around eight years. What's the best way to tackle that goal, and should he be investing in stocks? You know, that's a great question, because eight years, man, that's... <sighs> yeah. You know? It depends on the down payment. It depends on how much money that he's saving. It depends on a lot of things. But I think eight years out, I would. If 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 I were Zach, yeah, I would definitely go into you know total U.S. stock market index fund dollar cost average that in right? right. So I'm I'm saving whatever five hundred bucks a month or a hundred whatever he he's savings. Um, yes, and as I get closer, maybe when I get maybe three years out, four years out, um, then I would definitely would want to. Um, reallocate that overall portfolio. But eight years, I think, is enough time for a stock investment. I, I would tend to agree with that, Joe. And I think a lot of financial planners, advisors, a lot of uh, very smart people kind of use five years as a, as a marker. In other words, if you need money in five years or less, maybe you should not be in the stock market. But if it's more than five years, maybe you can be. And so, But it's not going to hurt him. He's 27 years old. Right. Right? So let's just say he's saving a couple hundred bucks a month. And guess what? In year seven, the market implodes. Sure. And he's still saving his ex, right? Who cares? You push out your house another a year or two. Well, I don't know. That's how I would. Because you have all those shares of that stock. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I, but I, I sort of agree with your first statement, which is as you get closer, maybe two, three years away, you start getting a little bit less aggressive. For, for that possibility. But I will say this, I mean, if we if we go to the Great Recession, which is the most recent recession that we had, housing went down at the same time as the stock market. So maybe your down payment is less, but your housing costs less too. Well, are you predicting another Great Recession? I'm just saying that's what happened last time. Well, okay, name another correction in the markets where real estate blew up as much. I mean, the real estate was the reason why right. everything created, yes. I mean, cratered. Well, it happened in the early 90s. Okay. Well, savings and loan uh, crisis, okay. real estate no, went no, way down instead of the market. Recession. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I don't even, I just threw I know, myself out there. I know, I know. That's why I'm, I'm older than you. I can remember some of these things. <laughs> oh. 1980. Real yeah. estate had done this huge increase, and then. So, and are you saying that real estate in the stock market have a positive correlation? Not as closely as as maybe two stocks, but sure. but sure, yeah. that I, I would say there would be some level of positive correlation. Yeah, I would agree with you. I'm yeah, just being an idiot. <laughs> I'm tired too. Celeste. Anyway, I think that's that's great, and and I, I would you know that's that's a long time to save for a down payment, eight years. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm. Uh, he's mapped it out. It sounds like be cool if he could do it sooner. But um, why? It, well, why are you forcing Zach into home ownership because, when he's not ready? Because I think you know what depends depends where he lives. But in let's just say he lives in Southern California, like we do. Okay. Home values tend to go up over time. Sure. And sooner is better than later. Yeah, but let's say he lives in Idaho. Sure. Yes, that could be different. Right? Idaho or Minnesota. Pro- Idaho probably goes up. I think my parents <laughs> bought this house that we're selling for 100 grand. We're going to yeah. sell it for like 108,000. That was 45 years ago. 
<laughs> no, I yeah, right. There are markets that don't see much appreciation, but I, I guess I'm that that what I just said was based upon living in a high appreciation area like San Diego. Yeah, come to San Diego and then mm-hmm. get uh, you need a four hundred thousand dollar down payment. <laughs> you do. <laughs> so you're eight years just to eighty years, Zach. Yeah, but there are ten percent down payment loans. There's even a three percent down payment loan. Oh yeah, then just leverage the hell out of it. <laughs> well, blow yourself up. It worked for me, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> oh my stomach hurts <laughs> alright we got one more question and then uh, right. we're done Okay. Okay. does parental income affect a dependent child's Roth IRA contributions and I'm not going to put all the fluffy stuff in and say dear Joe and Al Joe I really love how you run the show and that's because there wasn't a compliment that- in there <laughs> that you are absolutely and, one of the best advisors in I, the world. And I would and ask, Al is just your sidekick. I would ask for your autograph. Yes, it definitely. I would want a picture of you. <laughs> Can I get a picture with you? That'd be even better. I'm gonna get some signed glossies. We we don't we need that. We don't. No, have we that. don't need that. Yeah, we do. <laughs> no, okay. Because we get we get a note like that about once every three years. We need something. Send <laughs> <Just laughs> a lot of glossies you and I. <laughs> Oh, we should get another photo shoot. Which, yeah, which true. There's, there's probably what five hundred photos of you and me. We could pull one of those out. <laughs> yeah, there was a couple of them that looked like we were like together, like yeah, you were, like, like, like my like, old boyfriend, like a couple, right? <laughs> like I was your little token, little boy toy. <laughs> so, what's the question? <laughs> <laughs> this this thing just went way off course. <laughs> I'm trying to change the subject. Oh, God. All right. My father-in-law wants to set up a Roth IRA for his grandchildren, my dependent children. Yeah. He would match contributions to the Roth IRA. I understand the contributions are limited by the lesser of the qualifying income of $5,500. My question is, does my income... As the parent claiming the child as a dependent, affect the dependent's child's eligibility. I'm a high income earner and not eligible to open up my own Roth. I am also subject to various rules like AMT, PEP, uh, phase outs. Ooh, this guy must be a CPA. And other uh, rules of the tax code. I am concerned there may be some other rules in the tax code that applies to this situation. Please help. Oh, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, first of all, the, the answer to the question is no. Uh, your income doesn't affect your kid's ability to do a Roth IRA. So we'll get that out of the way right off the bat. I don't care whether they're dependents or not. The kids just need to have earned income up Correct. to 5500 bucks. But I'll tell you what he's probably thinking of is the kitty tax. Right, and the kitty tax is, is this: if your kids are under 19 years of age, then and if they make investment income, interest, dividends, capital gains, they get taxed at the parents' rate. I think that's what he's probably thinking about. Right, because let's say if I gift several hundred thousand dollars to the kids, right? To, and then they sell the stock, right? And then they sell it at their rate. They don't have income, and then oh, guess what? They're in the 15 percent tax bracket. Yeah, you know, no, I yep. can I can get a lot of this capital gains right. tax free. So you have to use the parents' rate. It's above what thirteen hundred dollars anything above that you got to use the parents rate but that's for investment income when it's earned income the parents income has no bearing on it right all the 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 child just needs to have earned income it doesn't have to be funded by the child as long as that child let's say the child makes i don't know ten thousand dollars working part-time um doing whatever right Mm -hmm. and so if you want to fund fifty five hundred bucks grandpa wants to fund fifty five hundred dollars it has no bearing on your income or grandpa's income it just has the kid has to have earned income. If the child does not have earned income, so let's say you got a grandchild that's five years old, it's not going to work because right. they need to have, they need to be working. W 2 wages, self employment income. So um, there you go. All right, that's it for us today. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. We'll be back again next week for Big Al Clopine. I'm Joe Anderson. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. So to recap today's show, downsizing, gain exclusions, refinancing, and reverse mortgages, they're all potential ways to utilize your home equity if you're house rich and cash poor as you approach retirement. But make sure you talk to a professional before making any decisions about which strategy works best for you. As long as a dependent is earning $5,500 a year, a parent or grandparent starting a Roth for the kid won't affect either the parent or the grandparent's taxes. Investing in the stock market for eight years before buying a house probably isn't a bad idea, but good luck making that work if you're in Southern California. 
special thanks to our guest, Mir Statman, for explaining why sometimes smart people do stupid things when it comes to investing. Get a copy of Mr. Statman's book, Finance for Normal People, How Investors and Markets Behave at Amazon. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, this show is about you. If there's something you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth, presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka is licensed under a Creative Commons license.